You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Good morning, everybody. It's Sunday. It is just after 7.30 and this is The Gardening Show. My name is A.B. Bishop and I am very happily, well, hopefully very happily, joined in the studio by Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants and Tim Sanson from Diggers. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Morning, A.B. How's everyone today? Everyone's fine, I think. Yes. Yes, yes awake. Making We're our way awake. into a Sunday morning. Yes. Yes. yes thrusting ourselves into a Sunday morning, I always think this is. It's not not exactly a gentle way to go into the morning, especially as early as we have to get up. I don't know what time you get up in the morning, um, Tim, but I normally get up at six if I'm coming in for this yeah, for radio. Same, slightly before. Yeah. yeah. So I always find that's a really uncivilised hour of the morning, especially is, on a Sunday, but anyhow. I do oh. think that as I'm driving in, I'm thinking all those lucky people lying in bed. Yeah, <laughs> rolling over. And they're which, probably which still I normally do, actually. Yes. If, I, if I'm not in, I'll be rolling over listening. So hi to those people in bed. Exactly, <laughs> bastards. <laughs> yes. uh, oh, I, I slept through my alarm this morning. Oh, so you, it, and you know what? I set a double alarm. Oh, I was goodness. explaining to Stephen, I'm a little bit deaf in one ear at the moment. For some reason, I've got an infection. And I completely slept through oh. both my alarm. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's actually quite amazing, and uh, yes, thank thank goodness that I uh, I woke up in time with both my alarms going. I think it's, off it's a bit of a it's kind of a dreary morning. Can I say that in spring? It felt like it, the drive yeah, this morning something... it was a bit grey. Yeah, it was a bit kind of misty. I mean, which is kind of charming in its own way. But it doesn't feel like a beautiful spring morning. No, it feels almost autumnal. It's yeah. really weird. It's not like spring at all this year. It's 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 going into well, we're well into spring supposedly, calendar-wise, um, but it just doesn't seem to have happened much yet. Well, it's Yeah, I agree. We were saying just before we came on air that mm. it's, it's a, a late spring mm. or where it seems like a protracted winter, perhaps. Yeah. And perhaps there's – I mean, things are, you know, leafing up and blooming. Yeah. yeah. But it's, it's it, it kind of feels like the four seasons, and I've thought this many times, the four seasons that we, we think of don't really work in yeah. many cases. And clearly that's not the case in – First Nations description of our of our seasons. There was not four seasons. There no. was oh my six, goodness! Seven, eight, so ten. exactly. Yeah. If you go to, there's a couple of websites. CSIRO has got a fantastic section on all the different calendars for the different um, uh, countries. Pretty much up north, sort of Northern Territory mm. and and WA and 
what I absolutely love about reading them, you can download them, they're really colourful calendars and people are so in tune with nature that um, a lot of the First Nations people will watch a particular grass, for example, mm. at, to see what it does through the year and they know that if that grass is flowering, then a particular insect will appear, which will mean that the fruits of this other particular tree will soon be ready for harvesting yeah. and on <laughs> and on it goes. It's just that real interconnectedness. Whereas we just translated something from England. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, we say, oh, yeah, look, yeah. there's daffodils, it must be spring. By a calendar. Yeah. yeah. I mean, totally it's, arbitrary. It is. It's completely arbitrary. But anyhow, it's sort of fun. Actually, it does lead me on to – I know we've got a heap of announcements this morning, but it does lead me on quite well as a segue into something that's happening up at Mount Macedon. Um, Denira's Bluebell Festival is very pommy sounding. <laughs> well, um, but bluebe- bluebells are marking a moment in the yeah, season. Yeah, they right? are marking a moment. And um, for anybody who's ever seen the bluebells up at Denira, um, the whole driveway is a sea of blue. Um, I don't think you could see bluebells like that anywhere outside of England. Mm. It's just amazing. There are literally hundreds of thousands of them. And so you've got this sea of blue all the way up the driveway. So it's on the 5th and 6th of November uh, from 10 till 3. Um, and there'll be a coffee van. There'll be live music. There'll be market stalls. There'll be local wine and gin tasting, CWA scones, garden tours, house tours, bluebells for sale, and you can BYO picnic and picnic in the garden. Um, and uh, so that should be a great fun weekend for anybody who wants to get involved. So that's the 5th and 6th of November. Uh, it's Kids are free, but adults are $30, but there's an awful lot going on. So you could have a really good afternoon. And it's certainly well worthwhile seeing the bluebells whilst they're in flower because it is and are they, are they behaving and they I think they, yeah, they I think well? they, I mean, the bluebells to... actually seem to have their own calendar they seem to work when you know almost every year at about the same time mm. the bluebells seem to flower whereas a lot of other spring things are very sort They're of very variable very dependent yeah yep. so but yep. the bluebell should be in full bloom um and um, I mean, the property itself is well worth having a look at. It's a beautiful, um, historically important uh, Mount Macedon Hill Station garden, and uh, probably one of our best landscapes of that era on Mount Macedon because a lot of the gardens up there sort of grew like Topsy, so they're not really mm. landscapes in a sense. They're just very grand estates with lots of trees on them. Um, but Denira has a beautiful layout, and it's got a lovely, you know, gentleman's residence on it, and all that sort of stuff. Is, so it's got lots of history. Is it open all the time? Or is no. It- it's only it. for this festival. Uh, well, it's for this festival. It's open. It often has an opening day in the autumn uh, or an opening weekend. And uh, a couple of lovely ladies, uh, Mel and Anne, um, are running a little company called Mount Macedon Tours, and they can take groups through. So they use Denira and some of the other big gardens for for tour groups. So you can get involved in a, in a small tour group. So they just call themselves all the W's Mount Macedon Tours or one word dot com dot au. So if you wanted to do it outside of the um, the Bluebell Festival. Um, you could get a group together and go up as a and do a tour of oh, some of the so Mount Macedon. Year round. Yeah, they'll do it at almost any time of the year. Uh, obviously, Mount Macedon, as far as colour is concerned, is at its peak in sort of high to late spring, and then again in the autumn, sort of March, April. Which are the uh, best gardens in autumn? Well, Denira is certainly one of them, mm-hmm. um, but some of the gardens up there that are absolutely outrageous in the autumn are not often open to the public. Unfortunately, uh, I know last year. I think it was last year, I took a, um, a small group of people around uh, the Macedon Ranges for four days 
and we went to a garden called Glen Rannick up there that has a Japanese maple walk and they've allowed all the seedling maples to grow up underneath them as oh, well. Wow. So you walk through this sea of yellow, orange and red uh, and it sort of encloses you above and you're, you're completely enclosed on both sides with all these seedlings of different ages and things mm. that have come up. And if you hit the right time, it is just kaleidoscopic. It is mm. just incredible. So, you know, there are views like that at Mount Macedon and if we get a good autumn, um, the colour can be outrageous. Um, so definitely worthwhile looking at. But certainly bluebells, that's the time of the year for them is, uh, well, particularly up at Denira because it's quite high up on the mountain. Early November is the time they're nearly always out and it's certainly worthwhile going up. There'll probably still be some primroses in flower and there'll be other lots of rhododendrons will be in bloom and you know so there'll be lots of those sort of um asian north american and european northern hemisphere things all doing their spring stuff up there so it's definitely worth it very good so there you go good all right so seeing as we've uh, got started early on the announcements maybe i'll continue the theme so so that was the uh 5th and 6th of november Uh, So there's a few things happening on that weekend. There's the Wyndham City Victorian State Rose and Garden Show, which is a free show. It's at Werribee Park and there will be hands-on workshops. There'll be lots of stalls selling all sorts of things and food and drinks, and that's from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. There'll be Melissa King, Vasily, Millie Ross, Craig Hustry, and myself. I will be chatting about multitasking native plants. Yeah. Uh, so that's the Wyndham City Victorian State Rose and Garden Show on 5th and 6th of November. Also on that weekend, there's the Yarra Valley Spring Plant Fair and Garden Expo. Goodness me, it's all happening. Big. And interestingly, Vasily is there as well. So How does that I'm, work? There's I'm two not, of him. Yeah, two, there's, must be two I thought of one him. was enough. <laughs> well, he is a very busy chap, so that's probably why. Uh, so this is at 125 Quail Road in Wandon, and Quail is Q-U-A-Y-L-E. It's from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. both days. There'll be 40 stalls selling plants, including rare and unusual things, garden equipment. Uh, There'll be landscape and garden specialists. Angus Stewart will be there, Jane Edmondson, Penny Woodward, Karen Sutherland, Peter Tees. They've stolen half of our crew. Patrick (laughs) and Vasily. So, yes, Vasily's obviously going to be dashing from... One side of Melbourne to the other. And he will be. I mean, from Werribee to Wandon. That's kind of crazy, <laughs> isn't it? paddle across the bay. Yeah. Um, the weekend, actually there's two weekends. So the 12th to 13th of November and then the following weekend, 19th to 20th of November, is the Garden Design Fest. So ah, that's yes. on. That's a fabulous opportunity to uh, get a bit of a sneak peek into lots of designer gardens, which is all fant- very fantastic. Uh, so there's... Four gardens at the Mornington Peninsula, four gardens Bayside and southeastern suburbs, five gardens in the eastern suburbs, eight gardens in the Ballarat area, four gardens in the Euroa area, four gardens in the Geelong area, and five gardens in Macedon area. Goodness. So there's a lot on. So that's the metro is the Mornington Peninsula and the Bayside and the eastern suburbs, and the regional is obviously the other. 12th to 13th of November for the Metro Gardens and 19th to 20th for the Regional Gardens. You can go to gardendesignfest.com.au. You can buy tickets online or you can buy them at the gate with cash or you can buy them at the gate without cash. 
So they want you in there regardless, so (laughs) come in. Um, and there's also a tour bus going, so you can either drive oh, yourself or catch a bus. Oh, the tour buses are fun. I, I actually was one of the guides on one of their tour buses one year, uh, one year, and it was great fun. We were doing sort of gardens around Hawthorne and that sort of leafy area of Melbourne, um, and it was fabulous fun because, you know, you didn't have to think. You j- jumped on mm. the bus, yep. you picked it up in the city, and off you went, and you had somebody in the bus, in this case me, uh, chatting about what we were going to see and talking about it afterwards so that we could talk about what what we saw as good design or how we would, you know, how we would live with a garden like that. Would we change it? Would we keep it? Um, it was, yeah, really good fun. Yeah, so I definitely recommend the bus trips yeah. fantastic way now doing. I, I couldn't see any prices for the bus oh. online but i'm sure you'll be able to um find it if you look a little bit deeper if you're driving yourself and you want to look at all of the gardens weekend one it's 65 dollars, and weekend two it's 60 dollars. And for both weekends, if you just want to go to a few gardens, they're between five to twelve dollars each, depending yeah. on the garden. So um, I definitely will be um, trotting along to a few of those. <laughs> I won't be. But... I'll be in New Zealand. Ah, oh, oh. very good. Yeah, well, so, yes. Poor you. Oh, no. Poor me. Yeah, yes. Poor... Yes. Leading a tour for nineteen days around the South Island, which sounds like it'll be hard work. Uh, no, well... it won't. At all, it'll be fantastic. <laughs> well, it depends on the group. Yeah. yeah. True, true. Some groups do make it hard work, but yes. And generally the topography. Speaking, yes, and the topography might as well. Although I don't think we're climbing up any of the mountains, so okay. I think we should be fine. So you're going right down to the bottom. Down yeah. Yeah. We're going to do the boat Lenark cruise on. Castle. Lanark Castle. uh, Castle's near Dunedin. We'll yeah. definitely be going there. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll be visiting places like Christchurch Botanic Gardens, Dunedin. Mm-hmm. We'll be spending time up in the Marlborough area, so mm-hmm. I guess there'll be some wine to be had. Um, and we'll be going up the west coast, mm-hmm. looking at the scenery. Hopefully, going to see. Friend, uh, Franz Joseph Glacier or mm-hmm. one of the others, um, Fox maybe. Mm-hmm. And Before they retreat up the mountain and yeah. disappear. Well, the last yeah. time I was over there with a tour group, it was peeing down rain on the west coast and they actually wouldn't let people in near the glacier because yeah. it was carving. Yeah. So there was these great chunks of ice that were falling off Whoa. it so they just wouldn't let people mm-hmm. in. Fair um, enough. So hopefully that won't be the case this time around. We should hopefully be able to get in and have a look at the glaciers as well. So uh, I remember seeing it at Lanark Castle, the um, Mechanopsis. The, yeah. In, yeah. In swathes. Yeah, uh, sickening, which is the, isn't the it? The blue poppy, the Himalayan blue poppy. Yeah, which we would all struggle to grow yeah, here. Absolutely, yes. Um, even at Macedon, then they're. they're finicky damn thing mm. to grow um but so beautiful so you you should be timing okay to see those you might yeah like we might see actually them. see yeah. them yeah. I, I can remember as a kid I, I was in new zealand for 12 months on a scholarship trip and uh working in the different parks and gardens and private nurseries around and i remember being at christchurch botanic gardens and they planted blue poppies out as a bedding plant yeah <laughs> and yep. there were hundreds of them, and there was this sea of incredible, intense yes. electric blue. Um, it was one of those things that will stick with me forever. I think I think that might have inspired Clive years ago because we had a we had an attempt for a few years at the Garden of St Earth to have a poppy festival <laughs> based on a couple of small blooms of, a, of one mechanopsis. <laughs> Uh, and everybody would stand around it and look. Yeah, yeah. One, look, there it is. <laughs> Nothing quite like it happens in New Zealand. No, no, it's a great place to see plants. So when's your tour? 
Uh, starts on the 3rd of November. It is booked out, by the way, I have to say. Uh, in fact, I think we've got a wait list as well. Uh, so it starts on the 3rd of November. I'll be back home on the 21st of November, mm-hmm. uh, just in time for the uh, 100th birthday dinner of the local Mount Macedon District Horticultural Society. Uh, this is our 100th year, wow. uh, which is very exciting. Uh, we're not the oldest garden club by a long shot, uh, but nonetheless, we're up in, there. In Australia? Yeah. Yeah. What's the oldest garden club? I'm Australia? not quite sure which one there is, but I know some of them are up to 130. Yeah, wow. Well. So uh, I'm not quite sure. Somebody out there might actually know what's the mm. oldest garden club. But I certainly, when when we had uh, one of our major events, I went uh, looked into it to see how we stood in the high ranking of age. Yeah. And I was surprised how many clubs actually were substantially older than yeah. the Mount Macedon Club. So, uh, but, you know, 100 years is quite a, a feat, and especially seeing as I was at the 50th. Um <laughs> It's a bit frightening. <laughs> Half century, well done. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I've been a crazy. member for longer than that, actually, because I joined when I was ten. Um, so um, yeah, so the our club up there's been part of my life for an awfully long a time long, in my long life. Time. So uh, yeah, I don't quite know how I'd cope if I suddenly didn't have. So will, uh, will the centenary have some slides of young Stephen? I doubt 10? it. I don't know that there's an awful lot of um, uh, of proof uh, of those things, unfortunately, uh, which is probably a good thing because uh, I think. I had really bad hair back then um, and probably bad dress sense, at least looking in hindsight. Um, we all did, Steve. Yeah, well, that's true. Uh, but I do remember the, the, the 50th quite well because we had it in our old hall, which unfortunately burnt down in the 1970s. Um, and it had belonged to the Working Men's Club and it had been given to the uh, Horticultural Society because the Working Men's Club was almost defunct. There was only a handful of members left. They couldn't manage it. So on the 50th anniversary of the, of the society, we decided to hang a plaque commemorating the Working Men's Club and the handover to the Horticultural Society. And I was 17 and I can remember probably the first time I'd had one or two beverages um, and I was the one that had to hang the plaque on the wall and I still remember standing up onto a chair to hang this song on the wall and convinced that there were two nails I could see in the wall. <laughs> I'm trying to hang this thing on there hoping I'd get the right nail. <laughs> My dad obviously wasn't paying terribly much attention to his, his young son who was having a wonderful time. Really, this is what happens at Horticultural yeah, Society. Oh, yeah, yeah. look, they're, they're, they're not those calm, cool, collected no. sort of uh, abstemious places that you think they are sometimes. So there you go. Very good. Well, I'm glad you're talking about your history because I want to come back to that with both yep. of you, how your horticultural journeys. Uh, but I will continue with oh, our yes, 8 million uh, community <laughs> announcements. We almost need a separate show just for the announcements. But anyway, uh, today there is the rest of the Fernie Creek Horticultural Society Flower Show. Ah, yes. Uh, that started yesterday and it's on again today. That's $5 entry and that's at 100 Hilton Road in Sassafras from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. And, yeah, they've got lots of... It's well worth doing that. It is, yeah. Yeah. Not not only for the flower show inside but for the gardens outside. Yeah, Yeah. the garden should be looking fabulous up there at the moment, so definitely worth a trip. And the Arthur's Creek Mechanics Institute has got its 34th garden walk today. There are seven private gardens. Uh, There's pottery, paintings, garden sculpture. There's African violet supplies, cottage plants, iris sales, land care display, refreshment and light lunches. So this is from the um, Arthur's Creek... Mechanics Institute at 906 Arthur's Creek Road in Arthur's Creek. Funnily enough. Strangely <laughs> enough, yes. Where is Arthur's Creek? Sorry. It's uh, sort of Hurst Bridgeway. Oh, okay. Yeah, out yeah, that way. 
All proceeds go towards continuing renovations and upkeep of the hall. It's a great community day and tickets are available from 9.30 till 3 from the hall and the gardens are open until 5.30pm. It's $30 for adults. Kids are free. There's FPOS available. And, yeah, so that um, looks pretty good. That would be nice to see some gardens Mm. out that way. That's sort of out my way. Um, Okie dokie. The Friends of Royal Botanic Gardens Cranbourne have got their plant sale on today, second day, from 10 to 4. That's at the Royal Botanic Gardens in Cranbourne, corner Bellato Road and Botanic Drive. Wide range of Australian native plants in tubes and larger pots, and it's a great opportunity to purchase some plants that they've um, growing in the gardens, and then you can go for a wander around the gardens yeah. and, and see another great day. Yeah, out. beautiful, mm. beautiful day out. There are three. So this is the Open Gardens Victoria Gardens coming up. Yeah. Uh, Ones which we mentioned last week, but they're open again today. Villa Ray, Ray Edward at 26 Melba Highway in Yering, which is the Yarra Valley. Formal gardens using traditional European garden design with avenues. And there's also a Japanese-inspired garden and a lovely perennial border. Large vegetable garden well, with 20 raised beds and a substantial orchard with lots of different fruit trees. So that's at 26 Melba Highway in Yering. Then the following two gardens are in Gippsland, so they're fairly near Bairnsdale. The first one is Emu Park at Robertson's Lane in Lindenau South. Ornamental gardens with colourful cottage plants, mature Chinese elms, silver birch, apple gums, red gums, a maple walk and a colourful smoke bush are dotted throughout the expanse of lawns. Mass planted succulents uh, look at home amongst cottage plants and leading down towards the stone gate, the garden becomes more park-like with oval beds of grasses, kangaroo paws and balls of wastringia. Well-placed sculptures, slabs of sandstone, lichen-covered rocks... Log seats and a huge water bowl surrounded by long-legged metal birds invite the visitor to wander. So that's Emu Park at Robertson's Lane. And also near Bensdale, there's Yerngar at 235 Mount Lookout Road in Mount Taylor. A massive Morton Bay fig greets you at the entrance. Then there's Japanese maples, a silver pear tree and a cassonia are some of the beautiful trees spread around the property. Magnificent vistas between the trees that lead to the mountains, succulents and grasses abound and the owner is Shirley and she's 94 and still gardening, still going strong. So those gardens are open today from 10 to 4.30, entry is $10 and $6 for students under 18 free, so that's the Open Gardens Victoria and then we've got six Open Gardens from Open Gardens Victoria for next weekend. And we've got a double pass for each of them. So if you fancy a double pass for them, you can give us a call on 94190155 and Michaela will give you the details. So the first one is Woodcut. This is Sandra McMahon's garden and she's a landscaper of note and mm-hmm. um, her garden is exceedingly amazing i've been there and it's an absolute delight it's at 73 pasco avenue in kilsyth sandra designs her garden with an emphasis on the use of plant material for structure this garden showcases a broad range of plants and a variety of garden rooms 
These show inspiration from Victoria's high country, Japanese gardens, prairie plantings, Mediterranean region gardens, water features and more, and heaps of roses and vegetable gardens or a section of, the, of those. And that's open next Saturday and Sunday. So that's Woodcut. Then the next two are sort of down the west coast-ish. There's Lalangi Farm, which is at 90 Polly's, P-O-L-L-E-Y-S Road in Barabool, which is near Geelong. The owners have been passionate about creating wildlife habitat, planting over 4,000 trees and shrubs. One of the features in the garden is a Sean Godsell-designed 30 by 30 metre shelter, which hovers above the house and garden, providing shade and water. I sort of found that quite difficult to picture, but when I Googled it, it, it made sense. It's, mm. it's quite fantastic. Do you guys know the Sean no. Godsell? So he's a chap, a, um, a landscape architect, and he also designed uh, park benches that could be slightly inverted and used as um, a sleeping area for for homeless people. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of park benches sort of discourage you sleeping. Yes, Um, yes, they put bits in the middle so you can't lay So it's very uncomfortable. But, yeah, yeah, Sean sort of took the opposite approach and designed them so that Mm. they sort of tipped up so they became like this mini tent that you could sleep under and get a... Yes, get a sheltered night's sleep. Uh, so, and this is a massive structure that provides shade over a, a lot of the garden, which is yeah, quite quite a unique way of doing it. And it's still planted underneath. It's very interesting, actually. Uh, with no access to town water, the farm is a great example of a water-wise dry garden built to survive in all weather conditions. Scott Lewing from Eckersley Garden Architecture will conduct walking tours at 11am and 2pm on both Saturday and the Sunday. So that's Elalangi Farm at 90 Polly's Road in Barabool, which is near Geelong. Then at Jan Juck, there's a garden ironbark house at 18 Broad Beach Road. Sitting high on a ridge overlooking Torquay and the surf coast, it has stunning views and the long driveway features a double avenue of ironbark trees. Designed by Peter Shaw from Ocean Road Landscaping, it features a dry stone creek bed that travels along a natural slope in the land to arrive at a labyrinth. There are communal spaces featuring a broad, flat area of picnic grassland and a fire pit seated area nestled amongst native grasses. There are many areas to explore, including a productive garden and a courtyard featuring deciduous trees. Peter Shaw will talk at 11am on both Saturday and Sunday and will be there to sell his lovely book Soulscape. So that's Ironbuck House at 18 Broad Beach Road in Janjuk. Then there's three gardens open in Inverloch, which are open on the Sunday only. The first one is Sephora at 1 Sylvia Court, a small garden set 300 metres back from the Inverloch surf beach. The garden was redesigned in 2012 around a 90s house to enhance and amplify the views from the curved windows and to frame a century-old Banksy Integrifolia. Oh, you've got to love people that do that, don't, mm. don't you? Yeah, just the plant. Here is the plant yeah, yeah. and Celebrate we will sit and plant. look at it. Don't yeah, chop it down. Don't yeah, chop it down, else. exactly. Yeah. Uh, and we can imagine how amazing that Banksy would look. It's essentially an Australian native plant garden with formal bones, structured and clipped elements give form and contrast. Then there's another garden at 4 Sylvia Court. 
This garden has evolved over 20 years. There are succulents, cycads, native shrubs and container plants. A Santa Ana cooch lawn is contained within graceful paver curves. Also a hidden bay of bonsai trees. A magnificent bougainvillea and wisteria that frame the outdoor living area and colour the garden in spring. And the last one down at Inverloch is at 8 Jasmine Court. So that's J-A-Z-M-I-N-E Court. Australian native garden planted in a cow paddock in 2011 after the completion of the house. The garden backs onto a reserve of mahogany gums, wattles and bubiala. The garden owner's overall concept was to use native grasses, flowering ground covers and bushes all for minimal garden maintenance. And there is no fencing along the south side of the property, which is open to the council reserve, and it creates a larger vista and allows the sort of thoroughfare of many visiting birds and other creatures. So that is the Open Gardens Victoria Gardens. And yes, so we have uh, those six gardens each have a double pass. So you can call us on 94190155 and Michaela will be able to give you those details. Now, have I gone through all the gardens? I think I have. I've done that one. Over to you, Tim. I'll give you a little break. Then, <laughs> give me sure. a break. I'll give you a yes, chop out, over. Um, I naturally just wanted to say how great it is that there's so many things that are on again mm. after coming out of the COVID lockdowns over the last couple of years and all the sort of um, quietness. It's nice to be able to get out and see places again. Yeah. And there's wonderful gardens that you don't see. Open Gardens Vic is great because you don't get to see those gardens unless you go along, you know, the yeah. open gardens. Yeah. Um, whereas us at Diggers, we've got Heronswood, St Earth and Cloud Hill, which you can visit any time. Yep. Um, and I would just shout out actually that Heronswood at the moment down Heronswood down the Mornington Peninsula in Dramana, um, the garden um, around the front part of the garden, the dry garden that Bill Bampton and his team have created in the last couple of years, is looking really fantastic at this time of the year. Much of the garden emphasis previously has been a sort of a summer emphasis, yeah. but this this new garden that, that we've planted is a it's a for want of a better word it's a gravel garden, mm. um, so it's a one drip. Uh, dry climate garden with a bit of a spring emphasis. So a lot of grey foliage, a lot of blues, um, and it's toning in with the sort of the front facade of the house. I've got a couple of photos. I might see if I can put one on the on the, the 3CR Instagram, but it's looking particularly stunning right now. Uh, the other thing I was going to um, point out, um, shout out while you're talking about events, is we've um, re-established our education program at Diggers again and just since the since the winter. So we've we've put the legs back on that after it was sort of shut down over the COVID period. So have a, have a look on the on the Diggers website. We've got a bunch of um, uh, workshops coming up in spring. We've got in on the fifth of November. We've got compost and soil health. Uh, we've got some of veggie patch at St Earth. Uh, that first one was at Cloud Hill actually, and then we've got heirloom seed uh, seed preserving and saving uh, at the end of November at Heronswood. But we've also got um, Matthew Evans from Fat Pig Farm down in Tassie. Um, who had a fantastic book that he wrote last year called, or released last year, called Soil, the Untold Story. Mm -hmm. A really um, passionate uh, sort of ode to soil and organics. He's coming out to do a masterclass with us on Sunday the 6th of November at Heronswood, um, which will sell out quickly. Um, it's it's in our our new magazine, which is about to hit the hit the membership. Um, but we're taking early early bookings on that. So if anyone's interested in that, jump on the Diggers website and have a look for our um, education section. Beautiful. I'm sure they'll be very popular. Yes. Yeah, they do sell quickly. Sell quickly, um, yeah. And 
yeah, we're you know we're doing so we're doing this face to face, and we're also starting to build a bit of a library of videos and things that will start to, to so we can spread it out to the whole country and have things that are more evergreen content mm-hmm. rather than having to come in. Yeah, beautiful, mm-hmm. very good. Is that all your announcements? That's all my That's announcements. Very good. <laughs> Back all right. to you now. Well, Amy. I should uh, open the lines up. What to a callers. good idea! Yes. Um, if you would like to call in, you can give us a call on nine four one nine o one double five, or you can text us on o four double eight. 809-855. This is, of course, The Gardening Show. I'm A.B. Bishop and I'm in the studio with Tim Sanson from Diggers and Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants. And we were going to talk a little bit about people's horticultural journeys. Stephen, mm. you've already started. Yeah. So well, start at the very beginning. The very, very beginning. The first plant you ever remembered. Oh, God. I'm not sure that I can even, <laughs> even say that because – I was born in Melbourne, but uh, my family moved to Mount Macedon just before I started primary school. Uh, So I've lived there most of my life now. And so that was when I was about five. I remember um, very early, we lived in a hut, basically. It was our shack that we'd built it, or Dad had built at Mount Macedon, I think out of packing cases. Um, We had an outside dunny uh, with a pan that you had to pull out and dig a big hole and bury it. It was pretty primitive stuff. We moved to Mount Macedon in the 60s credit squeeze because Dad's business had gone a bit haywire and it was more sensible to live in our shack than to be Mm -hmm. living in Melbourne. So we moved up to Mount Macedon and a couple of – and we had three acres – ish um and my father always being the entrepreneur uh he said oh i've got i've got three acres here what am i going to do with all that land and he had absolutely no background in horticulture whatsoever he was he was trained as a painter and interior decorator um and um so but he decided uh for good or ill, uh, to open a nursery. <laughs> he had of course. No, no idea what he was doing. I remember he, he used to go over to the Dandenongs and he'd buy a whole pile of flowering azaleas in hessian balls from the Dutch mm. nurserymen up around. Burlap. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, and he'd come back with those and sit them out near the road and, you know, encourage people to come in. He put signage up. There were never any permits. Uh, I don't think there was a permit for the house, to be honest, but anyhow. Was that where your nursery is now? No, no. Un- unfortunately, the family estate state disappeared years later um but i was about nine or ten when dad started the nursery and i do remember thinking oh my god this is just so fantastic this is where i'm always going to be uh even Mm. from the age of 10 so um, it's great to know at age of 10 what your life destiny was going to be yeah well exactly i mean it has gone off in some slightly unexpected directions (laughs) but it's always been about horticulture one way or the other um so as a precocious 10 year old i was i was Potting, weeding, propagating, serving customers. Um, Dad had a completely and utterly willing slave. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In the mornings, I would stoke the boiler in the greenhouse before I went to school, and then in the evening, I'd come home and do the same thing again. We had a briquette boiler. So he was propagating plants right from the start. Oh, yeah, that was part so, of it. So with, with zero experience, you've straight into <laughs> You have no idea how rough and ready some of Dad's <laughs> propagating was in the early stages. But it was interesting because we had a, well, a relative by marriage who owned a nursery in Melbourne, Harry Jackson, who I had uh, um, 
Idaho nurseries uh, oh, yeah, in yeah, Malvern. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so Dad used to go down to see Harry about once a week or once a fortnight or something. And Jack Plumridge was actually working after retirement from Burnley um, around at Harry's as well, doing propagating and stuff. So Dad picked up quite a lot of um, technical details from there. That didn't stop him doing his own thing. I mean, we propagated things in some quite eccentric ways sometimes. And because we didn't have the background and the knowledge that people who went through horticultural training did, um, we didn't know we couldn't do it. Mm. And sometimes we did. (laughs) So, yeah, so I grew up in a family nursery, basically. So the family nursery was my life until I was about 19 or 20. Uh, I went through horticultural college through uh, Oakley campus as an apprentice to my dad. Um, And so that's a three-year course. So did you start coming back saying, hey, Dad, you're doing this all wrong? No, 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 no. Once we'd locked in how we were doing it, that was our secret. We didn't tell anybody else. We just kept doing it. I mean, you know, I remember Jack Plumridge showing Dad how to propagate conifer and he was putting in these tiny little cuttings about, you know, an inch and a half long. And Dad was going, but that's going to take forever to be a saleable plant. (laughs) And so Dad was putting in his cuttings about a foot long. um, And Jack said, oh, they'll never grow, they'll never grow. The bloody things did, of course. Um, And so Dad had something ready to put into what we would have called a six-inch pot straight away Mm. and something that was saleable about 12 months later. Um, And I still remember uh, Jack turning around to Dad and saying, I taught propagating at Burnley for 35 or 40 years or whatever, he said, I think I now need to go and relearn everything I learned because, oh, yeah, right. you know, so, because dad was doing stuff that you shouldn't have been doing and getting away with it. Uh, Not only getting away with it, doing it better by the way. Well, it was, yeah. in fact. I mean, and in fact, the cuttings that dad was striking as sort of 12-inch long cuttings had a better, stronger root system under them than any mm. of Jack Plumridge's little tiny things that had one or two wispy little roots on it and they went into a tiny little mm. one-and-a-half-inch tube when they were mm. ready to pot up. Um, and... Yeah, so, you know, I've followed a lot of Dad's things ever since, you know, uh, so I often put in cuttings bigger than a lot of other people Mm. tend to. Um, And, yeah, so I went through the training at uh, Oakley because at the time, rightly or wrongly, I felt that the Burnley course was more about a technician's course than a practical nurseryman's course. Um, And so you'd go to Burnley train and then you'd go back to to Burnley to teach was sort of the way I saw it, Um, whereas I thought the Oakley course being a sort of an apprenticeship course would be more hands-on and and horticulturally oriented as a as a tradesperson admittedly it was pretty rough and ready itself because it was a newish course and they didn't have the the library they didn't have the teaching staff in fact most of the teachers were people who'd failed out in horticulture and went into teaching because it was a safe place to be uh i remember our landscape design teacher had gone bankrupt about three times before he went into into the horticultural teaching not someone good for teaching i wouldn't have thought so uh but nonetheless i I went really well in in my horticultural course. Uh, I did the three-year course, won a couple of scholarships. So uh, I was in the Apprentice of the Year awards. Uh, I was the first time a horticultural student had got there. Um, So I was in the top five apprentices over all trades in Victoria that year, which gave me a a scholarship to England for three or four months. So I went over there and worked at Brighton Parks Department, uh, which was great fun. Um, And I also got a journeyman scholarship to New Zealand, which was a 12-month one, where I worked – well, they – Gave me a ticket there and back. They organised my first job, which was at Christchurch Botanic Gardens, and then you were let loose. 
and you had to find your own jobs around the country. I mean, the parks and gardens uh, organisations and the nursery industry organisations knew that the scholarship winner was in the country, so they were asked to sort of give us jobs if uh, if we asked. And so I just worked my way around New Zealand for 12 months uh, in different parks and gardens and nurseries. And I have to say, the parks and gardens was interesting because it was a part of horticulture I'd never had any connection with being in the commercial nursery. Uh, so that broadened my mm. uh, attitude to horticulture immensely. Uh, so I worked in about three or four parks and gardens. I worked in some of what at the time were the Southern Hemisphere's biggest nurseries. Mm. Uh, Duncan and Davies Nursery in mm. New Plymouth was a couple of hundred acres and it was just mm. this enormous place. Um, in fact, it was so big you got lost into it and you just disappeared for the time you were working there until you left again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, I was working in the dispatch department and you had um, four-wheel uh, bikes with tr- with um, trailers on the back and you'd go around and pull out all the stock that was going off to orders and they had their own railroad, railroad siding where all the orders would be put together and sent off all around New Zealand and, and overseas and it was just remarkable but it was so big that it was unwieldy uh, and so the well, the whole organisation was a bit top heavy and, and weird and I ended up in the middle of an industrial dispute while I was at Duncan and Davies because I was working on this crew and the foreman of the crew went off sick I think it was through stress um, and instead of bringing somebody from higher up in to take over the crowd they, they actually put up one of the apprentices as charge of the crew and he went absolutely berserk and said I'm not doing this mm. it's you know it's just beyond my cap- capacity and so they all went on strike and it was the crew I was working in wow. so I ended up having to go and uh, do the um, negotiations, negotiations with the mm. The arbitration. <laughs> yeah, because, and I was only there for six weeks, um, but suddenly I was right in the middle of everything because everybody else on the crew were just kids. I mean, I was a kid as well, but at least I had a bit of background experience in horticulture, uh, and most of these kids didn't. Um, and so I became their their mouthpiece. Wow. And so what to, was everyone objecting to? Well, it was the fact that nobody with any sort of qualifications had been moved down to look after this crew instead of what they'd mm. done was they put one of the apprentices in charge who didn't know what he was doing. And so he just spat the dummy and said, I'm not doing this. And mm. so the whole lot went down on strike because it was just inappropriate uh, industrial relations. And uh, at the end of the time I was there, I was told by the, the managers that I'd handled myself so well that if I ever needed a job, I'd be always welcome back at Duncan and Davies. <laughs> Is it still operating? No, it, no, it closed a, f- a fair few years ago. But it had been, I think it had been in two generations of the mm. Davies family or the Duncan family or both. I think, um, I think Peter Teese from Umina spent some time. Yeah, like well. I think Peter did. Yeah. Um, and it was an amazing place. I mean, they were churning out vast quantities of plants. They were selling rhododendrons to Japan, kiwi fruit to Spain. You know, things were going all over the world. Uh, and at that time, New Zealand had a really buoyant horticultural industry. Um, but then, of course, when their government decided to close in on importations and uh, the biosecurity risks to New Zealand and stuff became uh, evident because they were doing some pretty silly things. I remember working at Harrison's Nursery where the azaleas that imported from overseas were the ones with the red labels. And they were all sitting together and, and they could propagate off them, but they just weren't allowed to sell those ones that they'd bought in. So if they bought in a new disease, it would have yeah, gone right through right absolutely through everything. Yeah. Uh, so they were doing some pretty naff things back then, but their industry was really 
bouncing along. But when uh, the government started to close down on a lot of stuff, the nursery industry just started to slowly implode because there was no new material coming in, uh, so they weren't getting stuff from all over the world. Uh, it was getting harder to send stuff out. Um, and so, unfortunately, the nursery industry is nowhere near like what it was when I was there as a kid. So, yeah, so that's sort of what happened. I came home after all my adventures overseas, ran the family nursery until uh, it was sold up in the late 70s. Uh, and then I opened the nursery where I am now. Um, so 1980, I started the nursery at 686 Mount Macedon Road uh, on a site that a friend owned um, at a peppercorn rent. And I ran the nursery on weekends for the first few years and worked in other people's gardens as a jobber gardener to make some money. And anything the nursery made went straight back into it. And I lived off what I was earning from other people's gardens at 50 bucks a day. Um, and yeah, so I think I worked seven days a week for about 12 or 14 years uh, without a break, mm. um, uh, just trying to get the nursery up and running and doing its thing. And of course, <laughs> from what happened very early on in the piece once I started my own nursery was I realised that the only thing I had that nobody else had was me. You know, anybody else could get the plant material I had. Anybody else could do almost anything I was doing. So I was the only unique thing in my nursery. So I started PRing myself. And the one thing I learned from my dad, uh, considering how many times he went broke or bankrupt, uh, was to say yes to everything. So I very quickly started doing talks for garden clubs. Uh, I was probably doing those at about 19. Um, uh, and then that sort of moved on to things like writing for Royal Horticultural Society's journal at the time, which was called Gardening News. Um, Neil Williams conned me into writing for that. He reckoned I could do it, and I thought, well, I'll say yes. <laughs> what can happen? Always say yes. Yes, always say yes. Yes, always say yes. So I started writing. Um, um, I got onto 3CR really early. I've been here for probably 35 years ish. Um, Alan Gilbert asked me to come in as a guest one day, um, way, way back. Um, and um, I started being a regular. So I started doing it once a month. Um, and I've more or less done it ever since. Um, and so that led to other radio things. And my dad started a, a gardening TV program well before any other uh, commercial television station had a gardening program. And ours ran through BTV6 in Ballarat uh, and we called it I've Got Gardenitis. <laughs> it, it ran for about two years. Um of course, Dad said yes to everything, but he didn't say pay me as well. So we did this whole thing for nothing for about two years and, and uh, the station got all that free content. Uh, but it syndicated to Tasmania and I th and one of the Melbourne stations, I think it might have been HSV7, uh, and also Adelaide for a while. Have you still uh, got... Some VHS I've got some tiny. I've got a tiny oh, little bit of footage. Super Eight. Uh, well, it was actually uh, it was actually on beta. Oh, was it? Oh, <laughs> the bit I had, which was really useful. Uh, and whilst I was on ABC Gardening Australia, one of the producers was able to get it put onto a disc for me. So I've got a, a, oh. a, a disc which I probably now need to update yet again. Yes. Uh, I've just need to put it in the cloud, Stephen. Yeah, well, I probably do need to put it in the cloud. I can't throw that high. Um, so anyhow, so. I've got a little bit of footage there and there's a, a, a funny little segment of me showing how to use a cloche um, and then there's a segment of Dad pruning the hydrangeas for Malcolm and Tammy Fraser down at um, Noreen um, and she thinking he was being a bit rough on her hydrangeas and whacking him over the head with a hydrangea piece <laughs> um, and that's all we've got because all the other footage disappeared 
because um, it was all reel-to-reel mm. stuff, so they would have reused the reels. Uh, so there might be something at the um, Commonwealth um, Film Archive. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. I haven't yeah. tried to look for it. Um, but, yeah, it was, it, was, it was so daggy and so unprofessionally done. I mean, we never had any scripts. We, we half the time didn't know what we were going to do until we got there. Um, but, you know, we predated all of those you know, the Don Burks the, and other yeah, people, the, original the shows. Jamie Juries yep. and yep. all those programs, uh, we were doing it first. Which Very was good. Which was Trailblazer. Sort of yeah, we mm. were. So, yeah, so I've had a fairly checkered horticultural career one way or the other. And, of course, now I do tours as well and I'm writing for the RH, uh, RHSV again. So I write every month or every quarter for their journal. It's now the Gardening Gazette. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I keep my hand in in lots of different ways and it keeps me very stimulated. Well, that was very interesting, Stephen. Yeah, that so was Stephen Ryan's Horticultural Life. Oh, this is your life. This yes, is your yeah. life. Yeah, where's the book? <laughs> yes, very good. Very interesting. Quite a few things there I didn't know. So we should get to a caller. What a good idea. Who has uh, come in. Hi, Jill. How are you? Hi. Yes, fine. I've changed my identify my tree. I've got about a thousand labels in a box and I don't want to go through the thousand. But I bought the tree at Thirty Creek two years ago. It has pink leaves in spring. Then they, at the moment, they're just gone to pale yellow. And then they'll go to green. And later on in the summer, not this year, but probably next year, it should have magenta flowers. And I'm wondering if Stephen can identify Well, the magenta flowers has thrown me because I was immediately going to say it was Tuna sinensis oh, yes, flamingo. Yeah. The pink leaves was the, yeah. was the start of Yeah, the which is um, the Chinese cedar. Mm. Um, Which is looking amazing but, at the moment. Yeah. Which, by the way, you can eat the leaves of. Yes, you can eat the leaves of it. I was actually going to say that, oh, but you beat yeah. me. Uh, well, what, what does it remind you of, the flavour? Not a lot, actually. I had one the other day and someone commented it, was, it tastes a bit like a burger ring. I don't so, remember the last time I had a burger ring, but anyhow. Um, oh, yeah, but so but the tuna doesn't get flowers. In fact, the, no. the variety flamingo, as far as I know, is a sterile clone. It doesn't flower at all. I've never seen it bloom. Um, uh, and tuna sinensis, the normal form of it, doesn't come out with pink foliage in the spring, and nor does it have – does this tree have fairly vertical growth pattern on it? Well, well at the moment, it's, it's really – got the tuft of leaves at the top of a stem that's about a metre tall. All right. I, I'd, say, I'd say it's Tuna sinensis flamingo, uh, but it won't get purple flowers. Well, they're magenta. They're more red than purple. No, no but they don't get flowers at all. No, well, this tree gets apparently gets... Ah, uh, but you're saying apparently. Now, I would almost bet my bottom dollar that you've got this tree confused with another tree and you've put the characteristics of both trees together because if it's got pink leaves that go creamy, lemony colour and then green and it's got a fairly upright, narrow habit, I can't think of anything else that has that growth pattern, but it will never flower. It's all about its foliage. Oh, so what's the name of that one? Tuna, T-O-O-N-A. Right. Sinensis, meaning from China. So S-I-N-E-N-S-I-S. And the cultivar is flamingo because of the pink foliage, of course. Okay. Thanks, Stephen. Yeah, so I'd bank on it being that. I can't think of anything else that it would be. Mm. 
Okay, well, I'm writing that down. Good. So and if I'm wrong, let me know later. When, when it flowers with magenta flowers. Yeah, yeah, when it has the magenta flowers, <laughs> ring me back again. Thank you. That's a pleasure. Good on you, Joel. Bye for now. Bye. Bye. Yes, it's one of those dramatic plants. I'm yeah, not all... It, it, this time of the year, yeah. you see it everywhere. Yeah, yeah. and, and then, then you never notice it yeah. again. Yeah. Um, in fact, on our YouTube channel, we're trying to get some footage together of things that have... Remarkable spring-coloured foliage because it's something that you don't it's often quite unusual. Yeah, you don't often hear about it, and and certainly the tuna is one of those trees I've been getting footage of, and mine got eaten by the possums, so I think they've killed but it. They like burger rings. Clearly. Yeah, yeah, they are clearly. <laughs> um, and so mine uh, was destroyed last summer, just after Matthew and I decided this would be a good storyline. <laughs> and it happens to me all the time now. I don't believe how you can decide on doing a storyline and then the plant that you want to talk about doesn't perform for that season. And it's happened to me about five times so far since well, we were doing our film. Don't put it out into the universe. Yeah, I've got, I've got yeah. to keep Whisper it to myself. To don't yeah. tell the plant. But, but exactly. I decided to show people how I grow my broad beans because mm-hmm. I use a piece of well mesh and I lay it on the ground and mm-hmm. I pop the broad beans and I use the well mesh sort of as a grid and then, and then I lift it up. Uh, when the broad beans get tall enough. So I planted all my broad beans like I ordinary, ordinarily do this um, Like you autumn, do every year? Like I do every year. Yep. A bush rat came in and ate every mm. single bean. So I tried again. He came in and ate every single bean. And I was determined I was going to do this bit of footage, which we haven't finished yet because the broad beans are only, mm-hmm. you know, about two feet tall at the moment. Um, so in the end, I had to raise them in pots up at the nursery. So I raised a whole pile of broad beans in tubes and then, and, and then planted the beans. So, and, and because the bean itself was gone, the bush rats didn't seem to right. be interested it was in only the, the seeds. It was itself. the seeds they wanted, yeah. obviously. So now my broad beans are well behind what they should be. They should be about three feet yeah. tall by now. Um, all because I decided we were going to film this process <laughs> to show people how to do it. And just it was determined not to work. This Naughty year. Rat. Oh, God, I don't know. I can't win with some things, but anyhow, it there is what it go. is. All right. Well, I'm going to quickly read out a few of the open gardens for next weekend again that still have double passes available. Ah, good idea. Um, so the tickets for Woodcote have gone and the tickets for the Jasmine Court in Inverloch have gone. There's still two Inverloch open gardens, which we have a, a uh, double pass available for. Uh, one's at uh, Sylvia Court, one Sylvia Court and four Sylvia Court, so that those are both still available. And there's also a double pass available for the Lalangi Farm in Burrable, which is near Geelong, and Ironbark House at 18 Broadbeach Road in Jan Juk. So there's... Um, yeah, double passes available for each of those. Well, so you people can should leap in. Give us a call on 94190155. Now, let's go to Tim. Oh, yes, We're going to get Tim's story now. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, well, so I guess my gardening journey begins, as I think most of us does with an interest as a kid, but my it wasn't gardening per se that, that got me interested in the natural world. It was – we used to camp every year at Wilson's Promontory. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, do six year, six weeks every summer. I think, um, you know, my parents were – my dad was a teacher, so we had summers off. And I used to love doing the junior ranger program and I was I got into bushwalking and observing nature and inspired by that. So that was – that's kind of led me down a path through my, my school time and into university where I was interested in natural history. Um, so when I actually went – when I finished school, I studied environmental management. So I was doing some more ecological, mm-hmm. e- ecological studies – uh, natural resource management, 
Um, so looking at and and that was it was the course was called environmental assessment and land use policy. It was an applied science degree. Sounds a bit tedious, but there it, you go. Well, it, and parts of it were fascinating. Yeah. Parts of it, there was whole farm management parts of it, and parts of it were fascinating. I really got into vegetation management. Oh, yeah. I was fascinated by um, that that vegetation is in a state of flux. It's not, you know, you know, we, we have this thinking, and many of us perhaps still do, that a native piece of bush is that's just how it was. Yeah, and but always it, will be. And always will be. <laughs> yeah. But I was fascinated by the concept that it always changes. So... But the, the thing was, I finished, I graduated, and this was Kennet era, Victoria, so public service jobs, which was basically where that was leading me to, were disappearing. So yeah. uh, I actually left the country and went off backpacking for three years. Sensible. Uh, yeah, well, which, which in retrospect was, because yeah. I landed after travelling around India and Europe and um, various other places, I landed in the UK, um, as many Aussies do on a, on a working visa. And worked in a garden centre in Kensington in London called Rassels, which is which is this beautiful, quaint old garden centre that mm. had been there for 150, 200 years. It was like, so it's in Kensington, which is quite a wealthy part of London, off the Earl's Court Road, and it was um, it was and set Earl's up. Court, there's a lot of Australians. Yeah, they were just down the road. I mean, there was there was cheap accommodation too. That was that was handy. Um, but it was and it was one of these sort of um, town square like which they often have like. Um, I think it was called Pembroke Square, which there's lots of townhouses surrounding a courtyard in the middle, um, and the courtyard had the nursery on it, um, and and it was called Rassels, and they gave gave me a job. I was I had no garden qualifications at all, um, but there I was in the garden hut out the back, giving advice to the, <laughs> the prim ladies of Kensington on gardening, uh, and 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 perhaps it's similar to how many of us started our garden journey. You, you, you start off in a retail garden centre, mm. and they are a hotbed of learning. You know, mm. they are. I'm, I, I must say, probably probably told a few mistruths in, in my, in <laughs> yeah, my but first you, I few bet years. You, I bet you said them with a plot. Yeah, but I pulled them off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and that that was it. Was actually that actually led me with into an interest of horticulture. So I'd also had a I guess with my environmental background, um, I had an interest in sustainable gardening. Um, so the, the the union of the two was of gardening and, and home gardening and natural resource management was permaculture. So I got quite interested in permaculture. Um, and after I'd come back from overseas, uh, I worked in a garden centre in St Kilda um, and was doing some garden rounds. And, um, you know, I guess that was my apprenticeship, if mm. you like. Uh, and then I did a um, – it was actually when the the 2000 Olympics were on in Sydney. That week, um, I did a permaculture design course down in um, Leangatha, or in Inverloch, actually. Um, and that – actually switched my life because I met a couple of guys there who were working in a garden in Bendigo called Gravel Hill Permaculture Gardens. We moved out of the city. My wife and I moved up to central Victoria. I, w- I worked, worked with them on this um, community permaculture garden for a couple of years uh, and it was fascinating. I learned so much and it was, you know, it was that sort of we were making it up as we were going along. We, um, we, we turned a, um, an old school oval into a productive vegetable garden where we had chalks, we had... We were we were doing all sorts of stuff like the, we managed to get all the the leaf um, all the trucks that would suck up the leaves in the autumn from the street trees to dump them in a huge pile for us and we had gangs of people doing compost work and turning yeah. that into great compost. So we were building our own soil. We we're making we we're making all sorts of stuff. It was great fun. Um, and then from there, I ended up because um, uh, I was living in Central Victoria, I got a job uh, with the Diggers Club at the Garden of Sud Earth. So that goes back. 
Well, my eldest daughter's 21, uh, and she was just born when I started at Diggers mm. in uh, the Garden You Center. must be one of their longest-term um Apart from Clive and Penny? Yeah, apart yeah. from Clive and Penny, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they sort of can't leave, really. They can't leave. No. <laughs> uh, and I did go away for a bit and came back. Mm. Um, and I do remember, because I was a Diggers, Diggers member um, for some years before that, and I remember in their in the catalogue, which we're still doing now, our magazine now, there was a fellow called Dave Pomari who was a I remember Dave well. Yeah, who was head gardener up at St Earth. And I remember reading the mag and going, wow, I just want that guy's job. Mm. Um, and the... The day, the first day I started at St Earth, I made, had this realization: I've got Dave's job, <laughs> and I'm living in the house he was living in. Yeah. Wow, I've got, this is the pinnacle. Yeah. Um, and look, yes, yeah, so I've been at, at Diggers for twenty odd years since then. I did uh, so about, and I've done all sorts of roles. So I started at St Earth, started living at St Earth, and uh, ran the shop and ran the garden there. Um, it was when I when I first started there, we took out um, parts of the old. Heritage Orchard. There was mm-hmm. an orchard that was planted, oh, it must have been in the 30s, yeah. um, which was a couple of big old trees that were getting quite gnarly. And because my interest was around permaculture and productive food gardening, we ripped out parts of that and put in an espaliered orchard, um, which was all fed off the worm farm septic system, put in a food forest. Uh, so it was super energising to be part of that wave of horticulture when food gardening was really starting to kick off. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and that that was that was where my diggers were taking it a direction as well. So, um, yeah. So that's that's um, that that's been how I how I arrived at diggers. I then have have worked through the organisation to the point where I moved down to Dramana, which is where diggers is centred. Um, so we've got Heronswood as, as I was talking about before, which is our show garden. We've actually got twenty acres out the back of Dramana, which is our production site, mm-hmm. which is where we do. We've got a production nursery. We've got our seed trial and seed production garden. Mm. So we're actually growing more and more of our seed now. Um, so that side I've been working there for the last 10-odd years, although I did uh, about six or seven, six years ago. I, I decided I wanted to do something else. I'd been at Diggers for a while, so I headed off and worked for Australian Ecosystems. Doing, um, oh, I ran their production nursery, growing oh, wetland. with Brendan. With Brendan, Brendan Condon. Condon. Yep. Mm. Uh, Trailblazer. Yes, quite a trailblazer in all sorts of world, in all yep. sorts of sectors. Um, so I was responsible for growing in, or running the nursery we grew. Yeah. It was a whole different suite of plants for me. They all looked like green blades of grass. You know? <laughs> it was all, you know, Bulbasheenus yep. and Eleocaris and Cladiums. Yeah. And I was like, you know, yeah, another well. green thing with strappy yeah. leaves. Yeah. <laughs> but it was all for um, uh, all these reveg yep. and wetland ecosystems. So. Um, a lot of these developments around either industrial estates or housing estates where there's a requirement to have a water treatment mm. reed bed systems or um, constructed wetlands. Yep. And we were growing millions of, of tubes to, to plant into those, into those areas. And it's really gratifying to drive past some of the places. Like there's one at Woodley Estate up near Deer Park, which I was involved in growing all the plants for that. And you have a look at it now. It's quite a thriving. Yeah, it's quite a thriving. Yeah, they're all grown up. Actually, they'll be all grown up, but they'll be a certain size. I get a bit frightened now when I go around and I go into somebody's garden and I find one of my old handwritten labels under this tree. Yeah, right. You know, there's this big tree. (laughs) You can wrap your arm around the tree. And you think, I grew that? (laughs) No, it can't possibly be true. You know, it's so vast. I can't have grown that. And there's plants that, I mean, like I look at the orchard at St. Earth or or Mm. something of the planting I've done at other parts of diggers or in my own garden. It's really gratifying to see something get to age that you put in the ground. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so you can plant something to give you shade. Yeah, it's got to wait yeah, long yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stick around. Yeah, yeah and, and it sort of happens. Oh, that was very nice. Thank you, Tim Sansom, 
for your horticultural I've, journey. Look, I've enjoyed horticulture all the way through. Mm. I think um, I mean, I'm really glad I didn't end up in sort of the public service working for Parks <laughs> Vic or something. I'm glad I ended up in – and what I love about this industry is that there's a – there's a mix of well, it's really closely associated with the natural world. So mm. we're you know always talking mm. about plants and living things, but there's an element of commerce around it too that I actually quite enjoy, mm-hmm. um, and that that you know we're self-determining this and we're giving it value in society. Yep, mm. and and we should give it more value. Yeah. All right. Well, someone who has been holding on for a while, Eleanor in Warrigal. Thanks for holding, Eleanor. No worries. Can you hear me? We can indeed. Oh, that's good. Um, I just wanted to commend Stephen on such a lovely potted history of his <laughs> horticultural background. It's a pun, but I know you're pretty into puns on this show. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I've got memories of Stephen Ryan's name, which sort of, when I heard about his career taking different pathways, made me think of my lovely adopted nana, Helen Serple. In oh, Manchester. yes, Helen. Yes. Oh, that's so lovely. Yes, I, I remember her very, very fondly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've lost track. Um, I know she's no longer walking this earth. No, um, no, she passed away a little while ago. Yeah. I remember visiting her in the nursing home, um, and she was actually quite comfortable there. I thought she'd be awful having to leave her garden and what have you, but I think she yeah. she got to a point. Um, and I visited her, I think, about 18 months before she passed away, and she was still – I mean, she was getting a bit sort of doddery and a bit forgetful, but she was still actually – with us, and she she remembered lots of stories about you know me visiting her in the garden, of course. and it was great fun. And she was very pleased to see me that I'd put the effort in to go and visit her. Um, and rather embarrassingly, there were pictures of her children uh, up on the mantelpiece, and in the middle was a picture of me with her. Ah. No, that's that's not embarrassing. That's not- <laughs> well, if I was her kids, I'd be a little worried. <laughs> No, Helen was a really big um, name name dropper and um, when we talk about the garden, she knew I was a Burnley graduate and she used to tease me, like, why did you leave the profession? Because I ended up going on to do occupational therapy. But I still use horticulture in my OT work. It's a wonderful blend of two different trainings. Yeah, of course it is. Um, but she would show me her book um, that you had signed for her and she'd say, I'm a personal friend of Stephen Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. I'm not sure whether I, I see that as a good thing or not, really, but anyhow. Uh, no, I think the fact that gardening was central to her life and it really brought us together because I was new to Myrtleford. I was lonely. Um, yeah. I used to pause at her garden and just go, wow, whoever lives here is a brilliant designer and a brilliant gardener, and I could see rare plants there, and that was how it started. She'd always be um, welcoming neighbours who walked past to, She used to Shanghai them. She didn't welcome them. She (laughs) dragged them in. (laughs) She would actually wait to pounce on them. Yeah, she would. She'd pounce on people and drag them in to show them around her garden and see her chooks and and what have you. Yep, and she had um, mirrors, and I really loved that, and she said, well, the physiotherapist that I work with um, teaches me about, you know, core strength and good posture. And if I've got mirrors at various points of the garden, I can catch sight of myself and just straighten up a bit. <laughs> so she had a wonderful way of blending, um, you know, the things that we get told to do in an instructional way with the joy of gardening. And she said to me, look, those arthritis pain medications, they only just take the 
they just skim off the pain. But she said to me, every day I go to the garden and there's something to do and if yep. I keep moving, I don't feel the pain. Yeah, exactly. She was dead right. So, uh, yep. And uh, that's one of the things I find to be a particular charm about gardening is it does – uh, bond you with such an array of interesting people, um, yes. and certainly Helen was quite a uh, an integral part of my horticultural career in some ways because she was the one that got me dragged me out to that part of the world, and she made sure with Gardeners Inc that I was up there a couple of times to do talks, and so I became quite bonded to that sort of Myrtleford bright area, um, yes. and I still occasionally go up. I actually had the owners of the Norella Garden. Um, uh, in Bright, uh, actually in the nursery on the weekend. Yep. And she came in to buy some things, and I remember the two elderly ladies that used to own that garden really well. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, so there's all those wonderful memories of of strong horticultural personalities that you, you meet as you go along. Yeah, she was quite feisty. I, I used to come and have a cup of tea with her in the <laughs> mornings, and she'd be all set up with the age, and she'd have her little sausage dog, um nestled into the bed with her and she'd have the age open and she'd start talking politics with me and I'd say, oh, Helen, I don't really understand politics and I don't follow it. And she said, well, you should. You've got a responsibility and an obligation to follow politics. Uh, I think she put a few people off, actually, because of her very strong opinions about some things. But anyhow, uh, she was a lot of fun. Yeah, I think it's the kind of, um, you know, those kind of... Speaking about dogs, now my own Kelpie is deciding to bark. Um, I think it is those sort of nuances that, you know, draw you to people that you know that they've got some passions and yep. they might, you might not share them. Um, but I was just very, very impressed with um, her knowledge and her dedication and, yeah, just she actually offered her garden to me. I, I didn't end up getting married, but I was going to get married in her garden and we planned the walk and everything and what what time of year, and um, I used oh, to goodness. play my cello in her garden because she said, oh, was she ever part of the Open Garden Scheme? Yes, yeah, she did. You know? She actually opened yeah. her garden a, a few times for Open Gardens Australia or it might have been even, yeah. even Open Gardens Victoria back then. Um, yeah. And But the problem with all of those things is you've got to plan them so far in advance that she got to a point in her life where she still sort of wanted to open the garden occasionally, but uh, it would have been more sort of something she'd do spontaneously for a local organisation or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But she did anyway, open the garden was... for the the scheme a few times. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was what she was saying to me. If I do an open garden, will you sit in the little pocket and play cello for the people passing by. So I never got to do that either, but it's been really lovely. Thank you, Stephen, for being able to share memories of Helen Serple and, and how much um, people can inspire you and, and they live on in your memory, really. Mm. And in yeah, some of your sure. plants. Mm. I've got a yeah. tree that I commercialised that was Helen's, a, a crab apple that she discovered. And so you can still now buy uh, Malus Pioneer Rose, which was yeah. actually Helen's discovery. Um, and I've got a couple of growers who are doing it now. And it's a lovely crab apple. So, well, I'll have to purchase one. Because oh, yeah, you need a Pioneer Rose. <laughs> yeah, I've moved from Wangaratta to Warrigal, so getting used to a very different garden that I've inherited. But um, elderly people... Are, are really undiscovered treasures because it was really my nana um, who wasn't alive at the time I met Helen Serple, but she inspired me to go to Burnley because I always remember she had a beautiful English garden in Ivanhoe and when I was 10 years old, um, 
you know, they were the sort of gardeners that had a painted white picket fence around the vegetable patch. Mm. Yeah. And I always remember the smell of the compost. They had the three-bay compost that Grandad had to dig and there was little wooden popsicle sticks that we all saved up as grandchildren so that we could write plant names because <laughs> she was always propagating. Uh, so fantastic. It just, just goes to show you the elders in our life really do um, enrich the children. Of course they do. Thank you. All right. Good lovely on, to hear from good you. Good on you, Eleanor. Thanks for calling in. Bye, bye for now. Okie dokie. And let's go straight to Ruth in queue. Hi, Ruth. Hi. Thanks for um, holding on. Hi. No worries. Um, yes, my neighbour has a lime tree um, that has whole branches that appear to be dying back. Um, when we looked at it last night uh, or yesterday evening, um, it looked like it had, well, it looks like sooty mould. It's black, um, black fluffy stuff on it. Um, the leaves also, before they as they're curling and beginning to die, have a little bit of a bubble on them. So obviously couldn't see any aphids or anything like that. Mm, sounds like a few things at play mm. to me. Um, sooty mould, um, which which you said was black and furry, but normally it's sort of black like a film. Mm. Well, um, yeah, black film, but yeah. sort of velvety. Yeah. yeah, so that I'd say you've identified what that is. Um, the the blistering could be citrus leaf miner, uh, which which will sort of show a translucent kind of blister and a like a little channel or a path on the leaf. Mm-hmm. Um, but both of those things suggest to me that the plant, it's, especially with the dieback as well, sounds like it's not particularly happy tree. Is it in a very sunny spot or is it in a wet spot, a dry spot? Oh, it's well, it's going to be wet. Mm. extremely wet at the moment. Yeah, mm. My citrus trees are looking crap. Uh, yeah. They've just had so much water and they've been mm. there for 20 years and I'm losing leaves off my yeah. navel orange and my lime's looking miserable and they're in raised beds, but it's just been so wet. Mm. I, I was, I was yeah. in Adelaide last week and was doing a talk and a, uh, a fellow came up and spoke to me afterwards and he'd, he was talking about his citrus that he'd had for 30, 40 mm. years. And they'd been fantastic every year, but this year they're at the bottom of a, a little section where it catches a bit more water, and they were, they were basically dying. Yeah. Um, so I, this, this has been a particularly bad year oh. for citrus, and I wonder if there's something going on with your citrus, Ruth, which is um, due to drainage. But it leaves over door. our fence, and we do enjoy the limes. <clears throat> yeah. It's been a very prolific year for limes and lemons. Yeah. Well, it... it so the dieback, the sooty mould, and you know potentially leaf miner. It sounds like it's got some issues. I'd, um, maybe as the weather warms up, more evaporation will reduce the the, the stress on the mm. the um, with the waterlogging. If it, if it is that, um, I would definitely be cutting out all the dead branches, looking out for anything that's like gall. Um, you'll get those little lumps in the branches. Cut them out. Yeah. Um, no. And when when he was renting the property, I would. Uh, surreptitiously nick in and carve out gall. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> oh, it affected my lemon Gorilla tree. Gorilla gall removal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It affected my lemon trees. So yeah, it will. Have... It'll keep... The wasps will go everywhere. Mm. 
Yeah. Um, the other thing it might be worth doing if you can for the sooty mold, because sooty mold is often um, associated with ants as well. So if you can um, put some sort of barrier around the trunk that stops the ants going up and down, that'll help. And yeah. scale. So look look for scale as yeah, well. Yeah, scale is another the issue. the sooty mold will be associated with the scale, mm. and the, which is why the ants are coming as well, mm. because they put out that uh, real sweet sort of mm. substance. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so just, yeah, have a, have a real good look at it and see if you can find any insects, because, yeah, the sooty mold... Mold will come after other issues. Mm. Yep. So I'd be yep. be looking for some other pest like scale. Yep. Okay. Great. Thank you very much. All right. Good I on you. I will Ruth. pass on the information. All right. Thanks. Thanks for that. Good luck with it. Okay. All right. Bye bye. Bye. Oh, I think we have um, struck a bit of a chord with listeners who are very much enjoying hearing your horticultural journey. So <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to read really? through some of the texts. All oh, right. <laughs> uh, fascinating to hear about folks' backgrounds. Must be a book in that of 3CR Gardening Show presenters from Wendy and Wanthaggy. Thanks yeah. for that, Wendy. Yeah, it sounds like a good idea. Um, Stephen, um, thank you for an insight into your amazing, interesting life. Your memory and knowledge are brilliant. I hope you have time to write your biography. Thank you to all the team. That's all I need to publish it. <laughs> That's right. Um, hi, AB, Stephen, and Tim. Oh, this is from Vicky and Peter in Notting Hill. Hi, guys. Uh, we had the opportunity and pleasure to pleasure to visit the gardens of Don Tees last weekend, and when I tasted the tuna, it tasted like Vegemite. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. We've got a sort of umami thing going yeah, on. Yeah, there Very is a bit of umami going on there, yeah. Um, and what's this one? Oh, I recently purchased a hydrangea that is PBR protected. Does that mean I can't strike it to give to friends? No, you can strike it to give it to friends. I do for my other hydrangeas. Yes, go go for your life. Just don't start selling them. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, otherwise you're fine. Yeah. All right. And hi, 3CR Gardening Show. Re a rainwater tank that has slimy walls and sediment at the bottom. Slimline tank with internal baffles, so pumping out and screaming scrubbing is problematic uh is using water on the veggie garden okay thoughts on purification treatments like chlorine dioxide and hydrogen peroxide um and this is from bill in pasco vale i just use the water on the veggie garden yeah no problem i mean it's it's actually water that's coming with some nutrients uh so i don't see it as an issue and i've this is quite topical for me we we have um tank water only it's an Mm. old concrete tank that's Mm. uh underground We've had no filter on that for our drinking and all domestic water for the last 12 years I've lived in the house. A lot of rainfall lately, and we're getting a bit of a tannin colour yeah. in the water. So I've been looking at filtration systems. I'm not, I'm not going anywhere near chlorine dioxide or no. any of those things. They're, they're sort of those, – those chlorine dioxide and those, in, those injection treatment systems are for production nurseries. Mm. And even a lot of those places are moving away and doing ultraviolet for, mm. for um, treatment of water. Um, but I've just actually did install two – Filters. From, this is not for my vegetable garden. Mm. I'm not that fussy about my vegetable <laughs> yeah. garden. I think to answer the question, go ahead and use it. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, you can get like a charcoal filter and a, and a fine filter. Um, but I've still got the tannin colour. It didn't take the, the yeah. tannin colour out, which I, I didn't expect it to. But uh, yeah. Close your eyes while you're drinking and yeah. you'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> I should have brought my water bottle in actually from my car because it looks, it looks a little, yeah. a little cloudy. <laughs> yeah, but plants, you know. They live in soil, so you know anything that comes in from your roof through your tank and into yeah. your vegetable garden is not going to do any harm to no. anything. 
No. So, and the tanks that I I've got tanks off my shed that are exactly like that. And mm. and yeah, I I would happily drink that water too. Clearly, because I'm drinking the stuff that's catching off the other roof. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yes, there's the really nothing wrong with you apart from your extra ear. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Exactly. normal. Head for radio. Oh, this is the Three CR Gardening Show. I'm Abby Bishop. I'm in the studio with Stephen Ryan and Tim Sanson. If you would like to give us a call. The number is 94190155 or you can text us on 0488 809 All right, now, seeing as though we are a gardening show, let's get to some plants. Oh, yes. Well, uh, I've bought some in today and the pictures are up on our social media feed. Um, so Liz has been very good about getting them up. So I'll quickly run through some of mine because... Uh, I don't know, we've spent an awful lot of time this morning doing an awful lot of stuff and not actually talking about plants. But anyhow, I'll start with probably the creme de la creme of the things I brought along today. This is one of the North American trilliums. Uh, The botanical name suggests things in three, and it does exactly that. It has three leaves at the top of a stem. It has three sepals behind the flower, has three petals, has six stamens and three ovary and I was really hoping Things. there was going to be three stems, but there's only two in No, the there's only – yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I've, got, I've got a pair of trilliums. <laughs> um, this one is Trillium sulcatum, which means boat-like. Um, uh, I'm not quite sure how you get that, but it has these lovely curl-back petals. This particular plant is a very pale, <coughs> almost white with violety edges. It's almost a picoteed colour. I've also got the same species in a dark burgundy, so it does vary in colour. And, in fact, I've been separating – because I've raised it originally from seed, so I've been separating all the individual plants this year to try and isolate the different colours so that I can then eventually sell a burgundy one or a creamy one or whatever. Uh, trilliums are woodland plants. They need a, a, a fairly high organic soil. Um, deciduous shade is ideal for them. Um, they don't necessarily need a winter chill, but they seem to enjoy one. Um, and I do have clients that are growing trilliums in Melbourne, so it's, it's certainly possible. But they're, they're very slow, so you need to start planting them 20 years ago. Because um, <laughs> they take tomorrow. forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, in the same sort of vein uh, is this little woodland perennial also from North America. Uh, it's commonly known as Merry Bells. It's botanically Uvularia, Uvularia grandiflora. Uvularia is from that piece of skin that hangs down the back of your throat, the uvula. Mm. So some very romantic botanist mm. named this plant. Um, so they are. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and it gets little lemon bells on it, and it's a really dainty little woodlander. It's it's a slowly increasing clump, likes the same conditions as the um, trillium does, so deciduous woodland. And I guess the third one that comes into the same sort of category is this little plant here, which is actually a form of lily of the valley. So Convalaria majalis, lily, true lily of the valley, and this is the one that's rather appropriately called variegata. <laughs> and it gets these yellow stripes up the leaves. So it still gets the white perfume flowers that you get with lily of the valley, uh, so you get that. But then when the flowers are finished, you've still got this rather entertaining foliage that keeps you going for quite a while. Um, it seems to be pretty well as robust as the normal form, which means that it isn't. Um, very few people can grow lily of the valley well unless they're in a sort of a coldish climate. It seems to prefer a winter chill. Um uh, although there'll be people around Melbourne that are growing it and would ring us in and say, but I've got it growing Is, it, is it the cold or is it the damp that's the limiting factor? I think it's a bit of both. Yeah. Um, Jane Tonkin swears black and blue that it needs a winter chill. 
So right. she she's quite convinced that it does well in the Dandenongs, it does well for us, but doesn't do so well in Melbourne because it really does like that winter chill. But I think there's also a moisture factor involved. I mean, it likes to have soil that's always just moist, uh, never likes to dry right out, um, and that's why you should never buy it as bare roots in a little bag and hanging up in a supermarket because Lily of the Valley doesn't like to be out of the ground for any length of time. Well, it's not going to get much winter chill sitting in a bag hanging Yeah, hanging in coals or somewhere. Um, Unless it's near the chiller. Yeah, well, it could be, yes. If they've got it down in the sort of the deli area near the near the meats and dairy products, it's possibly all right. Um, but I just think it's a really entertaining variegation and it's, and it's just it's actually, a nice it's, novel. It's a nice... Um, clean stripe variegation. Yeah, it's it a is, nice yeah. longitudinal I think stripe. even variegated haters might actually go. Mm. That's and there's plenty of variegated haters out there. They oh. might like that one. Yeah, yeah. well, there, there are. You said yellow. I mean, it's really a very subtle yellow. Oh, yeah, it's a sort it? of a buttery colour, really. Um, but it's it's a really interesting lily of the valley. And the only point of warning I will give people is that sometimes when it's divided, it goes green for the first year. Uh. And then it will re-variegate once it settles down. So if you do buy it at some stage from someone, um, don't panic if it doesn't come up variegated why, the first why year. Why do variegated plants do that? There's a variegated horseradish that we have. Oh. That's incredibly... Have you still got it? Yes. Oh, because I need it back. Okay. Uh, got, I, actually got import, yeah, okay. I actually imported that years ago. Right, and I okay. think it might have come from me to end up R- at Diggers. Uh, I really desperately need my variegated okay. horseradish back. So please, Tim, yes. when you get a chance. Well, the, the, the challenge is it with it is that you propagate it mm. and then for the first year or two in the pots it sits as green yeah. and we, and, have we got the right thing nobody will not? believe you yeah yeah okay <laughs> but anyhow, we've definitely so, got some in the garden at uh, Heronswood which oh, is showing variegation so alright I'd I, love a piece yeah. back because somehow or another I managed to kill mine eventually sure. and I loved it I thought it was a great mm, plant good thing. Um, on a completely different field uh, and this has an open properly uh, because it needs a bit more light, uh, a little South African bulb, uh, which used to be called a spiloxene. There's been a lot of name changes recently, as we all know, and this is one of them. It's now in a genus called Peridia, uh, Peridia serrata, and it has a star-shaped flower, um, quite a good-sized flower, really, for a small bulb, and it's the most intensely bright tangerine orange, mm. and it just leaps at you in the garden when the flower's fully open. Uh, it flowers for ages because it has a succession of flowers that come up from the bulb, um, and it's really sweet. And it likes a, like a lot of the South African bulbs, it just likes a an open, sunny, well-drained rock garden that you don't water in the summer, um, and it will keep coming up every year. It multiplies slowly, so it'll only make a clump over several years. But it flowers for about two months. And when you consider, you know, your average tulip you might get a fortnight out of if you lucky uh, and your daffodils aren't much better um, the vast majority of spring bulbs are very ephemeral do so, you have any trouble with cockies coming in and, and trying to clean up your um, bulbs uh, yes mm. it has been known I mean I don't mind them coming in and aerating the lawn to get the onion weed out <laughs> but um, unfortunately they have in a the go at a lot of other yep. things as well um, including funnily enough my ornamental oxalises get a bit of a hiding right. every so often from the cockies and things um, so uh, I haven't had them give my peridias any any sort of uh, attentions thus far but you never know no they uh, probably will now how big, yeah, how how big is the bulb of the oh it's quite small it has a little woody it's really not so much a bulb as probably more a tuber or a rhizome of some mm, sort okay. and it's a little woody thing with a with a tunic over it uh, and in fact they're really hard to see when the plants are dormant mm. so it's really hard to make sure you get all the and bulbs and it's going out. dormant mid-summer so you get this yep. flower right now and then yep. by Christmas it's yep. all over I might add the one I bought in is looking a bit truncated because a rabbit had eaten 
eaten all the leaves on the top of it. So, I thought you'd pruned the foliage off. No, no, no. It was, a, it was a rabbit that gets into my nursery every so often and causes havoc. Mm. Um, and finally, quickly, a weird buddleia. Um, uh, Buddleia crisper, which is one of the uh, Himalayan buddleias. It gets mauve flowers at this time of the year, slightly honey-scented, and the insects love it. But the best thing about this plant is later in the season it gets leaves that are huge, these big, broad leaves, and the most intensely silver foliage. It is just the most beautiful foliage plant. Uh, I wouldn't care if it never flowered, actually. The flowers are pretty, but they're not really important. But these big, interesting leaves, and unlike Buddleia davidi and some of its forms, it doesn't seem to self-seed itself all over the garden and come up everywhere. I got rid of Buddleia David I altogether out of my garden. Mm. I, uh, any of its forms, they all seem to self-seed all over the place. I was giving them away with plants at the nursery because they'd be popping up in pots of things I was selling. So Volunteering. I got, yeah, volunteering, yeah. So I got rid of Buddleia David I completely out of my collection, even the more obscure types of it, but I still grow Buddleia crisper because I think it's I, a good really, plant, actually. A really good plant. Growing it, what used to be at Sid Earth, along with Buddleia globosa. Yeah, Buddleia globosa. Globosa I had in the garden at home, and it's a fabulous flower, but I never felt that I got enough value out of the plant mm. for the size the of it. of it, yeah. Because you know, Buddleia globosa can be a humongously mm. big shrub, uh, and the balls of yellow flowers were all very entertaining, but there was never mm. quantity of it. I understand it. that. Yeah, so As a the, proportion to the, to the shrub itself. Yeah, that's right. And so I just felt it was taking up more room than it deserved, mm. <laughs> so my Buddleia globosa disappeared out of my garden at home too. So I've... I've Come down to just a very small group of buddleias that are. How big does CRISPR get for you? Oh, two and a half, three meters. And and would you, given that foliage is your preference, do you coppice it or? Oh yeah, I cut it back really hard after flowering and encourage new shoots from the bottom, Mm. and then they get extra big leaves on them. Mm. Um, But I grow that one, Alternifolia, Colvillii and Macrostachys um, fanispan uh, are the main buddleias I'm now growing, and they all seem to be quite benign. They don't cause any problems. Uh, They're quick-growing, they're hardy. They don't need as much pruning as the David eyes to keep them in good order, Uh, and they've got very entertaining flowers. And they'll grow from your kind of climate down to quite dry, hot maritime climates too. Yeah, a remarkably um, adaptable group Mm. of plants. So they're the bits I bought in this morning, so that was a very quick flip through them, That's but nonetheless, people can see the images if they go online and have a look yep. um, and get a sense of some of the things I bought in this morning. Yep, beautiful. Thanks for that. Okie dokie. Let's go to Miriam in Croydon. Hi, Miriam. Good morning. Thanks for your show. Always very interesting. Uh-huh, good. Now, Stephen was talking earlier about going to gardens and seeing trees and plants that he'd sort of put there years ago. Oh, and yes. How big they are. Well, we have a couple of prunus caters we bought from you about 13 years ago. Oh, they'll be big by now. Yes, they are, and they're just starting to shade our solar panels. So, <laughs> um, now, they bifurcate about a foot from the ground yeah. um, and have sort of two or three trunks going from there. How can we reduce the size of them to sort of... If you take off the height, will they sort of form more leaves and bush up a bit towards the bottom? Uh, you'll probably find you will get a little bit of low growth, um, but generally speaking, wherever you've pruned down to, they'll send out quite strong water shooty growth from there, so they'll yeah. comparatively quickly replace themselves. Uh, right. So if there is an issue with them getting far too big... Um, Reducing their size isn't going to reduce their vigour, and so they will, in fact, 
you know, probably grow at three times the rate of knots to... Now they've got an established root yeah, system. Yeah, they've got a big root system under them. Um, if for whatever reason you decide that that's all too much and you want to get rid of them, I have to say I'd be cautious about how you deal with them because if you cut them down, they'll sucker all over the garden. Yeah. Uh, so if you're going to do that, and it's one one possible alternative, I think I like prunus paters. I think it's a pretty tree, yeah, and it would be a shame to do that. Beautiful. Oh, when it's in flower, it's lovely with these spikes of white flowers on yeah. it, and it gets quite yeah. presentable autumn foliage, and it's a really quick-growing deciduous tree. But it will sucker like mad if you cut it down really hard. Um, so although I don't normally recommend poisons for anything, you sh- if you did decide to take the trees out – Cut them off and poison the stumps immediately after you cut them down. Otherwise, you're going to spend the next ten years pulling out suckers. Um, and you, yeah. and the way to do it is just with some neat roundup and just paint the top of the stump as soon as you cut it, uh, and that will kill the stump. Um, and then you can move on and plant something else in its place uh, that may be a smaller tree if you decide to go down that path. But pruning them back will make them bush a little bit from the bottom, uh, but they will replace themselves in size and height rather surprisingly quickly. So then you kind of start a, a battle with them where they grow, you prune them, they grow. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pruning isn't always about controlling a plant's size. In fact, it tends to encourage a lot of plants into huge vigour because, as Tim right. said, you've got a big advanced root system under them. So they've got all this potential oomph that they can put into regenerating from your pruning. So the heavier you prune them, the more they grow. Right, yeah. So you've got to come to terms with whether this is a major issue or not and whether it's shading your solar panels to such an extent that you really do have to do something. And, you know, long term, sometimes it's better to get rid of a tree uh, and plant something else in its place than to battle it for the next 20 years. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Oh, that's really helpful. Thank you very much indeed. That's a pleasure. Okay, thank you. Bye. Good on you, Bye-bye. All right, and let's go to our friend Fermi. G'day, Fermi. G'day, how are you? Good. Hold on, I'm just moving out of range of the radio. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, um, very interesting to hear um, the life stories there before. I I thought... um, I thought I knew everything about Stephen, but I obviously didn't. Uh, and I didn't tell you half of the really juicy stuff. <laughs> that, that's oh, part two. Okay. Yeah, okay. next week. Biography. Uh, dear. Um, I was ringing because uh, I was up at the Fernie Creek show yesterday, and um, uh, it was a miserable rainy day, but there were still lots of people coming through. And uh, so there's uh, plenty of things to see up there, especially if um, if you're interested in rhododendrons and azaleas. They've mm. been uh, quite a good display. But that this October um, uh, show was was actually used to be known, I think, as the Rhododendron Festival mm-hmm. because it was the um, it's the peak time for rhododendrons. And I always remember I would get really bad hay fever afterwards after being there for two days. Because obviously some of the rhododendron scents weren't the sort of things that agreed with my nose. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> uh, and um, yeah, there, there's plenty of interesting things. And Stephen, that Peridia is um, not serrata. Oh, isn't it? Well, what is it? Uh, 
I th- we think it's chrysalopes. It's been there's been a bit of discussion in the bulb. Oh, has there? Yeah. Oh, well, I, I would um, I would bow to your greater knowledge. Uh, Serrata <laughs> is is the name I could find for it. Uh, yeah. But if you think but, it's uh, chrysalopes, well, it probably is. Yeah. I think it's. It's Chrysalopes subspecies, something or the other, oh, God, or the really? other way around. Something. Yeah, sub- just write that on the tag now. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> something or other. <laughs> something or other. Yeah. yeah um, something or the other. Is, yes, it's, it's rather is, unfortunate yeah. actually, because one of the peridias that was in fact spiloxine was actually yeah. the floral emblem for the South African Indigenous Bulb Growers Association. Oh, so, nice. so they're probably uh, in flux as well because they've had to change the name of their floral emblem. <laughs> <laughs> At least, at least the plant itself doesn't change. For no, the no, the plant itself is going to look the same <laughs> yeah. no matter what. But anyhow, yeah. Oh, anyway, we're um, we're looking forward to you um, coming to speak to us next week at, oh, yes, at the uh, AGS. Yes, yes. So that'll be up at the Alinda Hall, and I'll be talking and about my trip to Morocco. Yes, that would be great. Yes, I'll wear my my hiking boots. Uh, seeing Your as <laughs> yeah, and my fez. Yes, I've got a fez. Uh, the fez and and the uh, harem pants. Yeah, oh, actually, I haven't got the harem pants. I forgot to get those. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you might find me arrive in the fez. Who knows? Because uh, uh-huh. a charming waiter at a hotel we were in um, gave me a fez because it was my birthday uh, when we were uh-huh. there. So yes, yeah, so I've got my birthday fez. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, so there you go. So, yes, yeah, so I'll be there with my fez on. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that should be good fun. Yeah, and um, if any 3CR listeners are interested in joining the AGS, they can uh, give me a, a call or call by you, mm-hmm. and uh, they, they, we can invite them along to the meeting. Yeah. Yeah, well, it should be okay. good fun. So, yes, AGS, for those who need to know, is the Alpine Garden Society, um, and uh, they meet regularly up at um, Alinda, uh, and uh, it's become something of a tradition for me to do the sort of October meeting. So yeah. I've got to keep travelling just so I've got somewhere different to show you next time. Oh, well, we're, we're, looking, forward to, we're looking forward to you doing the WA experience. Oh, God, yes, I suppose I should put a PowerPoint <laughs> together of the WA trip that I just did. Yes, there's a thought for me. Something else for me to do in my spare time. Oh, yeah, yeah, your spare time when yeah. you're not gallivanting. Yes, okay. exactly. Good on you, Fanny. Thanks, everyone on the panel. It was a, it's been a really great show. Oh, good on you. Thanks. Thanks, thanks for calling. Bye for now. Okay. Bye. Bye. Ah, very good. Okay, so we have, Tim, we're going to come to your plants. I quickly would like to read this out. This is from Rosie in Mount Eliza. She would like to know where she can get some of your plants, Stephen, particularly the Buddleia. Um, they, they're in Mount Eliza. Can she get them online? Do you post them? It's hard Look, for it, them to it, get to, Matt, to, to you. Well, I, I have, would have to say I would always encourage people to make the trip. Uh, because you'll find things in the nursery you didn't know you needed. So it's really important (laughs) to make that trip at some point or another. Uh, If they were to ring me at the nursery, I don't do mail order myself, but um, some good friends of mine at White House Nursery are only 20 minutes away and they're a mail order nursery. So I can send things through them. It's a little more expensive to do that because I've got to pay for the postage and I've also got to pay for their time. So it does work out a little bit more expensive. But at the price of petrol, it's probably still a reasonable buy 
uh, to get them sent out. But you'd need to ring me at the nursery. I can then take your money over the phone. I can take all your details so that I can, you know, get your postal address, all that sort of stuff that we need. And then I drop the stuff over to the boys at White House and then they ship them out for me. So it can be done. But um, would diggers be growing? Not CRISPR. We have in the past. It's definitely been on our catalogue before, but it's not one at the moment. Yeah. But now I'm going to go and propagate it. Yeah, well, I think you should. It's going to be a few months away. Yeah, well, it will. It'll take time if you're just just going to start. But it's a damn good shrub. Yeah, I agree. And so it really should be growing a lot more. Um, And I don't actually know many other people who are doing it. Mm. So it is one of those plants that you don't see around terribly often. Mm. Uh, I know... uh, of one wholesaler that has it on his list occasionally, and that's uh, Mount Flora at Buninyong. Mm-hmm. Um, Neil over there occasionally mm-hmm. has CRISPR on his list. Um, but, yeah, I don't know anybody else who's propagating it, mm. well, unfortunately. Yeah, so yeah, diggers need to get going. Yeah, yeah. coming come in the next 12 months. I quickly want to mention that the November issue for Gardening Australia yeah. is out now, and it's our first issue that has a butterfly on the cover so we're very excited about that we've got a good pollinator theme going on so there's a lovely story by helen young about pollinators Uh, we've got a excerpt from jack semler's book super bloom Bloom, and she'll be in next week to talk about the book so that's very exciting her wow her Planting is just insane, mm. is it not? Maximalist. Oh, <laughs> yeah, crazy. And uh, Angus has done a story on hypercalamar. There's stories on mini roses, courtyard gardens and all sorts of things. So that's the Gardening Australia issue out now. Tim, over to you, Yes, you've got some okay, well, As plants. usual when I come in here, there's, we get to the last five <laughs> oh, minutes no. and we reckon, oh, there's still stuff to talk about. Um, so I, I, I was just going to mention in similar vein to UAB that the, the Diggers um, Spring Edible Magazine is about to hit uh, our membership. Mm-hmm. So that'll be heading out this next week um, with a couple of you know, good features in there around some uh, topics of the day. Uh, but the three products that or three plants that I brought in which are featured in the mag – um, and I've sent some pictures through, so they'll go up on the Instagram. I've got uh, wasabi. Uh, so we've got so I've got three, basically three continents worth of edible <laughs> plants. We've got wasabi, which is a Japanese, mm. um, a uh, bit of a tricky thing to grow. Probably would go quite quite well with the with the trilliums somewhere. Except the snails love it. Yeah, which yes, yeah. true. <laughs> in I a tried, pot, in yeah. a pot with copper around the yes, top yes. or something. Uh, I tried wasabi for a little while early on in the piece when it wasn't really around very much, and if I didn't keep an eye on it, yeah, it's uh, true. You know, one it's very snail <laughs> gets in there, and your wasabi's ruined. But most of the wasabi that we get in the market, like if you go and get your you know, at the little um, uh, the local shop will will normally be horseradish. Yeah, um, yeah, it's not wasabi. It's not at wasabi. All. So mm. grow your own um, wasabi is quite possible if you can keep the snails away. It's somewhere that needs moisture, um, bit of yeah. shade. Uh, I've also got a vanilla orchid here. Um, which, now, that, surely that's not that easily growable in Melbourne. Well, not outside. No. So our, our experience with this is, I mean, we've got a lot of people who've been interested in growing indoor plants in yeah. the last few years. Oh, yes, indoor and, plants are the thing. And one of these in your bathroom, and they like humidity, mm. right? And we've well, had, they grow it in Madagascar. So. Yeah, they grow, it in, they grow it in Uganda. They grow it yeah. in, so, mm. it's, um, uh, so it's a tropical, a true mm. tropical. Mm. Um, uh, and it is an orchid. Uh, um, but will grow indoors in Melbourne in a bathroom with ample light and plenty of moisture, and you can get it to flower. Um, and if you so, do, can you get the vanilla pods? Because you so have to then you have hand, to hand pollinate. pollinate. Yes. yes, even even commercially, they mostly hand pollinate. Yeah, well, in Madagascar, they don't have the vanilla moth. That's right. So, so they have yeah. to go around and hand pollinate their vanilla crops. And is it and and so if you get to the point where you've got it 
flowering in your bathroom. There's great YouTube videos on how you can get uh, a stick and open up the flap and, and get hand pollinate. Yeah. Uh, so that's vanilla. Well, at $400 a kilo, it's, oh, yeah, it's yeah. worth growing your own vanilla. <laughs> it might take you a couple of years, but hey, it's, it's always worth the challenge. Yeah. And the last one I've got is uh, Mediterranean. This is a caper bush, uh, Capra spinosa. Um, and there are a number of Australian capers um, up, up north in the in the desert country. This is the Mediterranean form. In fact, I, I think there's, it's not exactly known where its origin is because mm. it's been so closely associated with human activity Yeah, for so, so it's long. moved around for yeah, a long time. Yeah, so this is the caper bush, grows in the cracks on the wailing oh, wall. It's an amazing in, plant on, when you see it it's, growing. It, it's a really interesting thing too that, because it, it's grown, grows in sort of sharp, dry, hot country. You think you could, you should neglect it, but actually they respond well to good amounts of water mm. if you grow them in a container. Yeah. So long as it drains well, they will grow. They will thrive um, with additional water and additional. And the flowers food. are beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. And I've got the photograph I've put up for the um, uh, for the Instagram feed mm-hmm. has got the spidery flower. Yeah, it's a beautiful flower. Uh, so you can get the flower, you get the 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 bud itself, which is what we know as capers, yeah. and then also the caper berries if, mm. if they pollinate. So. Three of the three other interesting edibles that are featured in our mm, latest they're biggest very magazine. interesting. Yes. Yeah, especially the wasabi. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah. Uh, you just got to put up with those snails. Oh, give it yeah, another the, crack. I might give you this one. Yeah, 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 I'll take it home and kill it as well. <laughs> oh, dear. Is it quite technical to grow? They they like so think about where they grow naturally. It's so it's a Japanese plant that grows in forest streamside right, situations. Yeah. So um, excellent drainage. But constant moisture. Yep. It's one of those tricky ones. So yep. it doesn't want to be and, and there's a and there's a temperature band too. They anywhere sort of above thirty degrees they start to to, to wilt. Mm-hmm. Um so obviously we get days above that temperature. So deep shade um, and water moving through. So you can grow it in a container quite happily. Yep. It should it's be happy drainage. in a sort of a hydroponic system, shouldn't well, it? Well it would be, yeah. Yeah, yeah it would be. I, I'd On imagine, the south side of the house. South side of the house, yep. shade. Mm. Ample moisture, but let the moisture cool. run through. Yep. And and high organic matter. So, Very all right. Good. Well, thank you for that, Tim. Quick question, Stephen. You've got 10 seconds to answer. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> no. Um, I was wondering if you've seen Buddleia indica around. We have one, but I don't ever seem to see them in nurseries. That's yeah, no, I haven't seen indica enough. for sale anywhere. So you might have to propagate your own plant and bring some up for me mm. and I'll trial it out and see how it all goes. Hmm. But, uh, I mean, it's a huge genus. Uh, it comes from all over the place. So I've got one from uh, South America at the moment, Pichinchinensis, which I'm going to start propagating soon. So, yeah. Very good. Well worth it. All right, guys. Well, we got there very, very quickly. It <laughs> was that long. We yes. Fill in the time I easily, would don't we? like to thank Tim Sanson and Stephen Ryan for coming in and sharing your fantastic knowledge. Thank you so much to Michaela Hamilton for producing for us today. And thanks to Liz for doing the socials. This has been the 3CR Gardening Show. I'm A.B. Bishop. Until next week, ta-ta for now.